It's interesting that at this time of year, next weekend, there will be hundreds of millions of people all around the world celebrating the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world. And yet, of course, at the actual time of his birth, it was very, very different. Only a small handful of people recognised and acknowledged that Jesus had come. Only a small number of people worshipped him. And it would actually be 30 years later that the world began to realise who this carpenter from Nazareth really was. And sometime later, the silence is broken. Now, if you were making a film of Matthew's record of Christ's life, at the end of chapter 2, it might be portrayed with a shot of Joseph and Mary entering the town of Nazareth, a young boy at their side. How old might he have been? Difficult to say. Maybe about seven or eight years old. We can't be certain. He'd be at their side. And then perhaps the camera would zoom out to show the surrounding countryside, the rolling hills of southwest Galilee. Maybe it, the camera will pan over to the far northwest and there is Mount Carmel overlooking the Mediterranean Sea, the place where about 850 years earlier Elijah had defeated the prophets of Baal. And then if it panned from west across to the east, there you would see the rolling hills and the mountains of Galilee. And on the far side of those mountains, the lake which bears Galilee's name. And then perhaps the picture would just go out of focus for a short time. And then in the shimmering heat of the Judean wilderness, the camera spots a wild-looking man, dressed very differently to everybody else. And the camera zooms in on him. And as this happens, at the bottom of the screen, the words, some time later, appear. How many years after Mary and Joseph arrived back in Nazareth with Jesus? We can't be sure. We know it was 30 years after Christ was born. Maybe around 20 years or a little more since they returned to Nazareth. But it's been more than 400 years since God spoke directly to Israel. Now he had spoken to individuals. We know that, for example, because Luke tells us of an old man called Simeon who was in the temple when Joseph and Mary arrived at the temple in Jerusalem to bring their thank offering for the birth of Jesus, as every good Jewish husband and wife would do. And Simeon had been told by God that he would not die until with his very own eyes he had seen the promised Messiah. And that day he did. And God, by his Spirit, confirmed to Simeon that this baby was the promised one. And what a glorious thing it was that Simeon said on that day in the temple, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace 
according to your word, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before all the face of the peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So God has spoken to certain individuals, but it's 400 years since there's been a prophet in the land. And now the silence is to be broken as John the Baptist comes surging out of the Judean wilderness and seemingly wakes up the whole nation with a call to repent. And it's Luke again in the opening chapter of his gospel who lets us know about the miraculous way in which John the Baptist had been conceived. You recall, don't you, as, you, as Luke gospel, Luke's gospel opens, he tells us about how six months before the angel visited Mary, there was an elderly priest in Jerusalem whose name was Zacharias, and he was visited by an angel. And he was told that he and his wife Elizabeth, uh, who was an elderly relative of Mary, uh, and a Elizabeth was a descendant of the priestly line of Aaron, that was the brother of Moses, well, Zacharias and Elizabeth were to have a son. And Luke tell, tells us that this childless, elderly couple were righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. And, and this son whom Elizabeth would deliver six months before Jesus was born, this boy was given the noble task of declaring and preparing the way for the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus would call John the greatest of all the prophets. In fact, he would go beyond that. Jesus would say that John the Baptist was the greatest one ever born to any man or woman on the face of the earth. A burning and shining light. What a ministry God gave to this man, John. And John would be the last of the Old Testament prophets, even though we read about him in the New. All the other prophets, theirs had been to point into the distant future concerning God's promised Messiah. But John would be given the most wonderful privilege, for his message would be, Messiah is here. He's come. And John, as the last of the Old Testament prophets, would have the amazing privilege of pointing to Christ. There he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And there, at that point, in a sense, Old Testament gives way to new, as Christ, then, is the whole focus of the New Testament. But first, God has given John the Baptist a preaching ministry. Now, we don't know for how long John's ministry lasted probably months rather than years, but we don't know. And John's task was as simple as it was immense, to prepare the way for the Lord Jesus Christ to begin his public ministry, to announce him, and then to give way to him, the one who is mightier than all. And compared to John's ministry, 
It's only Christ who can bring life-changing, everlasting salvation. John, he brought a a ministry uh, calling people to repentance. But it's only the Lord Jesus Christ who can actually change lives and bring salvation. But John first has his own important, significant message and ministry. And it's summarised in a single phrase. And it's there in the opening of chapter 3. Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I want us to do three things this morning. First of all, uh, let's think about this kingdom of heaven. What, what is it? What's John talking about when he mentions the kingdom of heaven? Secondly, how do you get in? Because we're all born outside. But how do we get in? And thirdly, how can you be certain that you can stay there? They're the three topics that John met. Now, they're important topics. I hope you're listening. What is the kingdom of heaven? The word kingdom in the New Testament is mentioned 152 times. It's an important topic. The Gospel writers tell us that the Lord Jesus Christ went all around preaching the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven was Christ's message. It was Christ's theme. It's most frequently actually called the kingdom of God as well as the kingdom of heaven. It's also called the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of the Son of his love. But it's all referring to the same thing. What is a kingdom? Well, a kingdom is a place where a king rules and a kingdom is a people over whom a king reigns. A place where a king rules and a people over whom a king reigns. That's what a kingdom is. A kingdom has fixed borders and boundaries. It has a known population who inhabit it. And those people call that place home. Jesus came to preach about the kingdom of God. And he came that exiled sinners might be provided with a way to return. God's kingdom is a place where God rules And God's kingdom is a people over whom and in whom God reigns. But it's not a physical place. Jesus said, didn't he, my kingdom is not of this world. But it does have borders and boundaries. The borders and boundaries of God's kingdom are righteousness and holiness and truth. Now, of course, God rules and reigns over all of his creation in a literal sense. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's over all things. But God's kingdom is where God rules and reigns in relationship with his people. That's what is being spoken of when John mentions the kingdom of heaven being at hand. The place where God rules is in the heart of his people. And the people over whom God reigns are those for whom Jesus will one day die. And they are those who will turn to him in repentance and faith. That's what the kingdom is. 
Now you see, the Bible speaks of all men and women and boys and girls as those who are far away from the kingdom of God. Those who have wandered away. Those who have been exiled and banished from God's kingdom. Those who are outcasts and strangers from God's kingdom. Sinful men and women and boys and girls are not part of God's kingdom. They are outside. They are not children of God. They are children of wrath, says the apostle. They've rebelled against God's rule. They've rejected God's reign over them as king. And our sins have brought that upon ourselves. The fault is mine and the fault is yours because of your sinfulness and mine. And the purpose of Christ's coming into the world that we remember at Christmas time is in essence a very simple purpose. It's to bring lost sinners back into the kingdom. It is to restore citizenship. It is to reestablish the reign of God in the lives of his people for whom Christ will die. In order to do that, that which has been the cause of our estrangement from God, our sins, that must be dealt with. Which is why the angel announced that Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. The thing that's keeping them outside, Christ is going to deal with. And his people are not drawn just from Israel, but the Gentiles also. So this is the great theme of the gospel. That sinners can be reconciled to God and be welcomed back into his kingdom. Welcomed back home. Restored with new life into God's kingdom now and forever. It's an everlasting kingdom. Christ is going to have an everlasting rule and reign. Now, of course, this wasn't the type of kingdom that the Jews were expecting. And Matthew desires to show them what God's kingdom really is all about. The reason John says that the kingdom of heaven is at hand is threefold. First, the king is actually here. And soon you're going to see him. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Second, the king himself is soon going to do that which is necessary in order to restore your citizenship into the kingdom. And that, of course, will be by means of his crucifixion and his resurrection. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And thirdly, very soon, that kingdom is actually going to start being established in the hearts and lives of men and women who come to a saving faith and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then they will have God reigning and ruling within them by his spirit. They will own and serve God as king through the Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And John has one message for the people. Now you'll hear people today suggesting many approaches to preaching the gospel. But there is one thing that the Bible makes abundantly clear. 
No one is saved, no one is converted, no one comes to Christ if they have not confessed and repented of their sins. If you have not confessed and repented of your sins, you are not a Christian. So no matter what approach you may take to beginning a conversation when you want to share with someone the gospel of Christ, you have to get around to this subject. John doesn't mess around at all. He just gets straight to the point. Now, of course, it is worth acknowledging that the people in John's day actually had a fairly good understanding of what repentance meant. They had some spiritual background. They had some spiritual grounding, which lots of people don't have today. But I think the principle of getting to the point as quickly as you can is still a very valid one. Read through the Acts of the Apostles where you see the apostles preaching. And you'll see that they are men who, when they're preaching, get straight to the point pretty quickly. Even when they're preaching to pagan Gentiles, they don't hang around. You don't have to spend months getting to know someone and building bridges in order to get to the point. Such notions are, frankly, as ridiculous as they are unbiblical. Just tell people what they need to hear. Tell people what they need to know. This man, John, who Jesus said is the greatest of the prophets and a burning light, what was his message? One word. Repent. Repent. That was the message of Peter on the day of Pentecost. Repent. In fact, the words repent and repentance, you'll find them 50 times in the New Testament. Don't reinvent the message or it won't be the gospel that you're preaching. How do we get into this kingdom that Christ has come to restore? You need repentance to enter. Suppose God declared that for one day only it would be possible for you to introduce all of your unsaved friends and relatives to Jesus in person, face to face. That's never going to happen. Just to use your imagination for a second. There's going to be one day and Jesus will be here and I can introduce him to you and you'll be able to see him face to face. What would you tell them prior to that meeting? What would you say? What approach would you take? Would you try and find words to sell it to them? Would you try and hype it up a little bit in the hope that they'll get there? I want to tell you, if such a face-to-face -face confrontation with Christ was possible, the only thing that you should be saying to your friend is that if they are thinking of standing before Christ, they had better repent. You see, one day they will stand before Christ. And they will do so either 
as a repentant saint or as an unrepentant sinner. The message that God gave John to preach, that God gave John to preach, was repent. John doesn't go around saying to people, this will be the peace you've always been looking for. It will be, but that's not John's message. He doesn't say, this man will give you all the purpose and meaning in life that you desire. Now he will, but that's not John's message. He doesn't say, let me tell you about some of the amazing things you're going to see and hear when this man appears. The message that would prepare people for the arrival of Christ was this. Repent. Those who did, their repentance was acknowledged publicly as John baptised them in the River Jordan. And the one thing that they all shared in common is that which is recorded at the end of verse 6 of, John, of Matthew 3. Every single one of them confessed their sins. You see, that is the issue. That before God, you have confessed your sins and repented of them. If you will not deal with that issue, you will never get into this kingdom. <coughs> to confess your sins, what does that mean? It means to agree with God about your sins. It means to agree that you are guilty of transgressing God's law. It means to agree that you are guilty of outright rebellion against him. By setting out to live your life your way, not his. And without him, not with him. And loving and serving yourself instead of loving and serving him. To agree that you do deserve eternal condemnation because of your sinfulness. And to agree that this Jesus who came into the world, he really is your only hope. And having agreed to repent, to turn around, to turn your back on your sinful life and turn your face towards Christ, to put your sins behind you and to put Christ in front of you, to run away from your sins and to run to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to repent. To stop trusting in yourself and to start trusting in Christ. To deny yourself and to follow him. To repent. This is why Christ came into the world. That in turning to him, you might be saved. Are you? Now this message of John's, calling people to repentance in order that they might be restored into God's kingdom, it explains why Jesus himself did lots of the things that he did. So, for example, on that day when Jesus was confronted with that paralysed man who was lowered down through the ceiling of a house, the burning issue for Christ was not, this man can't walk. 
it was that this man is outside of the kingdom and needs to be brought in. That was the burning issue for Christ. Jesus didn't start talking to this man about how fantastic his life would be once he gets the use of his legs back. How much better life will be when he's no longer confined to his bed. That's not how Jesus spoke to him. Son, your sins are forgiven. Why that? Because the burning issue for Christ is that here is a man who needs to be brought back into the kingdom. Which is better? In God's kingdom with no legs or outside of it with legs? See, that's how Jesus thought. Which is better? In God's kingdom, facing opposition and persecution, or outside, living in ease? Which do you choose? You see, it's all about being in the kingdom. Are you? When Jesus told the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector praying, what was it that lay at the heart of the tax collector's prayer? What is it that Jesus takes great care to emphasize in that little story? It wasn't that the tax collector was going to gain great victory over all of his circumstances. It wasn't about the wonderful, purpose-filled life he would now have The tax collector hides away. He's alone with Almighty God. He's in the presence of the one before whom the sinless angels hide their faces and cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And that tax collector bows ashamed and guilt-ridden before Almighty God and pounds his chest with his hand. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm outside of your kingdom. Oh, that I might enter. I'm lost and condemned in all of my sins. Oh, that you would remember me and save me. I am the wretched sinner that you say I am. Please do not treat me as my sins deserve. I am a rebel. I am a lawbreaker. I am an outcast. I am a stranger. Oh, that you would have mercy upon me. Stretch out your loving hand and receive me back to yourself. That was the prayer of the tax collector. And by God's mercy and in his marvellous grace, prayers like that get answered and people like that get saved. Jesus said, that man went home justified. He humbled himself and God exalted him. At the start of the prayer, he was far away. But he went home a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And that's what matters. That's what matters. 
God does not desire that any should perish and commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because until you deal with that, you're going nowhere with God. If you have a look at Luke chapter 13, have a look when you get home. Read the opening verses. Within the space of three verses, twice Jesus says, unless you repent, you will perish. Christ said that twice in three verses. Unless you repent, you will perish. God has a kingdom. Let me tell you, it is a glorious kingdom. It's a place of peace for the soul. It's a place of love and hope and joy and contentment. It is also a place of service and sacrifice and commitment. And it's a kingdom which also is surrounded by enemies on every side. But there's still no place like it. There's no better place for you to be. But if you would come in, if you would enter, and I pray that you would, there is only one place where you begin, and that is on your knees before God, confessing your sins, pleading God's mercy and grace, and running to Christ in repentance. Have you done that? And then finally, there needs to be fruit to remain. Fruit to remain. John's spoken about the issue of repentance in those opening verses, but then in verse 7, he sees coming to him some of the religious elite in their day, the Pharisees and the the Sadducees, and he has a few words to say to them. It's another theme that Christ would talk about a lot as well. True repentance and true kingdom citizenship shows itself to be genuine by the fruit that it bears in the life of the Christian. That humbled, repentant spirit of the tax collector, completely dependent upon God's grace and salvation, is what typifies true kingdom citizens. Did you notice that John speaks to the religious elite in verse 7 in exactly the same way that Jesus will? He even uses some of the same language, brood of vipers. Jesus would use exactly the same phrase against these men. He's scathing of them because they have a false, self-righteous religion which has no repentance in it whatsoever. If you'd ask those men, they would say that they are carrying kingdom of heaven identity cards but they're fake, they're counterfeit. I wonder, are there any here this morning and you yourself, like these religious leaders in Jesus' day, think you have no need of repentance? These men, you see, they believe that they're already in the kingdom on account of their own attainments and achievements. They have no genuine sense of repentance 
because they don't actually see that they have anything that they need, they need to repent of. Such is the quality of their lives that they live. They're good enough. No need to repent. Uh, I know of people today who've heard the gospel and they walk away and they, they say, well, that's all very well and good, but uh, I'm, I'm not that sinner you're talking about. I, I have no need of God's mercy like that. Uh, I have no, no uh, awful sins in my life that I need to repent of. And the gospel is rejected. Well, the assessment of John of people like that is that they're not in God's kingdom. You're no children of Abraham, he says. Of course, the Apostle Paul will go on to explain it's not about having Abraham's blood in your veins. It's about having the same type of faith that Abraham had in your own soul. These men don't have it. He describes them as being like trees that are of no use or purpose because they do not bear any fruit. True kingdom citizens bear fruit. Well, that's kind of a whole other sermon we could go into. We haven't got time to go into that this morning. But you see what he says about the Lord Jesus Christ. He describes Christ as the one who has an axe in his hand who is ready to put that axe to the roots of those trees and cut them down. This Jesus will bring about genuine saving faith and new birth in many people. But these religious leaders are not those people. He says of them, you're like the chaff that's mixed in with the good grain. But this Jesus knows who is who and which is which and he will separate the two and the grain will be gathered into the barn. See, there's two completely different groups being spoken about this morning and at this Christmas time, I hope as we think about these things, it will help to challenge you to know for sure which you are in. Are you in God's kingdom? Are you one of those who Christ will gather in? That's the kingdom, those who he brings into his barn. And for those of you who are believers this morning, I hope these words of John are a rich encouragement to you to see the certainty of where you will be on that day when that great separation takes place, that Christ will gather you to himself and you will be with him forever. But the chaff has to be separated and it will be burned and it will be a burning that will last forever. <clears throat> There's an awful day approaching when there's going to be a great separation of mankind. Now, in one sense, that separation is already ongoing as men and women are called into the kingdom. That separation is a reality right now in this room because there are those who are in the kingdom and there are those who are outside. And I want to challenge you as to which of those two positions you are in this morning. So this separation is already ongoing. But on the last day, when Christ returns, that separation will take place in a most remarkable way. And forever, the two will become separated by Christ. 
it's possible to give some appearance of being a Christian. Here you are each Sunday. You live what you think is an upright life. Maybe you consider yourself to be in the kingdom. But are you one of those who, like the religious leaders in John's day, are carrying a fake identity card? Because you've never actually addressed the issue of confessing and repenting of your sins before Christ. Today is a good day to put that right. This Christmas, as our focus is upon the arrival of Christ into the world, in order that he might save his people from their sins and restore them into God's kingdom, this Christmas is a good time to get yourself right with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. In the scriptures, the word repentance is used on numerous occasions and has various exhortations attached with it. Repent and be converted. Repent and believe in the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Repent and turn to God. They're all phrases in the New Testament. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 